So what I'm going to do is I am going to give a bird's eye, just overview of the story from the Old Testament. So your handouts are pretty long. You can take notes if you want to, but you don't have to. You can just listen. I will send you home with a written up summary on the last day of class. So if you just want to sit back and listen, that is fine. All right, so I'm going to talk really fast, just letting you know ahead of time, because we do have a lot of material to get to, and I don't want to short your time at your tables. So let's go. All right, the story began in paradise. God and his people together in a perfect home, untouched by the curse or any enemies. And then God blessed his people with fruitfulness, telling them to multiply and to fill the earth. And he blessed them with dominion, telling them to rule the whole earth. But Adam failed to keep the garden, and a snake crept into their home. That snake told Eve lies about God, and rather than exercising her God-given dominion over the lying beast, she listened to his voice. She broke God's only law, and then she offered Adam the forbidden fruit. And he, in turn, listened to her voice rather than God's, and also ate the fruit." Well, their actions brought an abrupt end to paradise and ushered in a worldwide curse and continual warfare with the snake and his offspring. Well, God did not immediately require Adam and Eve's lives that day, even though death was the clearly stated punishment for their crime. Instead, he mercifully revealed that he had a plan to save everything that was lost when they rebelled. In Genesis 3.15, God speaks the very first prophecy about a son who would descend from Eve and crush the snake, but at personal cost to himself. Then God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, where they, believing God's words, began to multiply. But their first son murders their second, and reality hits them full force that outside the garden, the heart of man is just as barren as the ground. Murder is now in the heart of man, just just as it had been in the snake. Will the snake and his offspring derail God's plan to send the snake crusher? No. God's plan is still on track. Another boy is born, and, and he is blessed. His line is fruitful. And here Genesis records genealogy after genealogy, so we know that lots and lots of people are multiplying. But with the multiplication of people comes the multiplication of sin. The sin on earth multiplies so much that God's righteous spirit is vexed. He chooses Noah to warn the people of the earth of his coming divine judgment. But ever since the garden, people prefer to hear the lying words of the snake rather than the true words of God. So the people ignore Noah, and they continue to multiply their sins. And in doing so, they align themselves with the snake And God curses them, just like he cursed the snake. He sends a destructive worldwide flood, saving just one hero, one man and his family who listened to God's words and believed them. So Noah not only represents God's judgment, but also a brand new beginning. God blesses him. He tells him to be fruitful and multiply, and he gives him dominion. So just as he had blessed Adam and Eve in the garden, he now blesses Noah. This is Eden all over again. 
But just as quickly as sin destroyed paradise, sin taints this new beginning. Noah and his family are no different from Adam and Eve's, and we see that the normal process of human multiplication cannot produce the hero the world needs to crush the snake and reverse the curse. So is God's plan still on track? Well, we've already seen that murder hasn't prevented the birth of the snake crusher because after Abel dies, God raised up Seth. We also saw that widespread sin and rebellion against God won't stand in the way because God preserved the line of the woman through Noah. Well, in the next chapter, we meet an old man and his old barren wife, and we learn that old age and infertility These are the effects of the curse on the earth. Even these cannot derail God's plan. In Genesis 12.1, God tells Abraham to leave his father and his homeland to begin a new family and a new country. And already, we begin to suspect that God is going to rebuild Eden through this new couple, a new land and a new people. But they have to wait wait for God to give them offspring, wait for God to make that offspring into a great nation. God even asked them to die in the waiting process, but to die in faith, believing that God would raise up their descendants into a great nation that would produce kings, one of whom would bring an earth-wide blessing to reverse the worldwide curse. Well, that old man and his old barren wife believed God, and they did what he said. And in time, they celebrated the birth of their baby boy Isaac in a foreign land far away from their families. Well, as the years passed, God revealed more of his plan to Abraham. He would give Abraham's descendants the land of Abraham's sojournings. But first, those descendants would live as exiles and slaves in a foreign land. For 400 years, and after those 400 years, God would bring them out with great possessions and finally give them the land he had promised to Abraham. So, like Abraham waited for God to keep his promises in a foreign land, his descendants now would also wait in a foreign land. And they're not the only ones who will wait. God himself would wait patiently delaying his judgment on the wicked people of Canaan, giving them time to repent. Because not only is God just, he is also merciful. Well, Abraham's blessing passes to Isaac and through Isaac to Jacob, rather than on to his brother Esau, even though he's the firstborn. And Jacob, you know, is very fruitful. He has 12 sons. His favorite son, Joseph, survives his jealous brother's attempt to kill him, and then God sends him ahead of his family into Egypt, where he rises to second in command under the Pharaoh. And in this position, he is eventually able to save his father's entire family from a worldwide famine. So Jacob's family moves to Egypt, where they continue their work as shepherds, and they grow, they multiply into a vast nation. On his deathbed in Egypt, Jacob passes his blessing not to Reuben, his firstborn, because Reuben had slept with one of his wives, but he passes it on to Judah, prophesying in Genesis 49.10 of a king from Judah's line who will rule all the nations. Well, eventually, the original 70 members of Jacob's family who moved to Egypt die in Egypt, like Abraham had died in Canaan, without seeing God's promise to their nation fulfilled. 
and a new pharaoh comes to power, one who does not know about Joseph and does not like Joseph's descendants. He sees that they have multiplied and become very great, so he enslaves and heavily oppresses them, even killing their baby boys to prevent them from being fruitful. But God's plan cannot be undone even by powerful earthly kings. And God raises up a deliverer for his people in the household of Pharaoh. And through that deliverer, Moses, God humiliates Egypt with ten plagues. And then, in a mighty display of power, he delivers his people from slavery in a mass exodus from Egypt. After they leave Egypt at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant of love with the people of Israel, which they immediately break by worshiping idols. While Moses pleads with God to forgive them and reestablish the covenant, and God does so, and they go on to build the tabernacle. So now God has an earthly home and can come down to earth and live with his people like he had in the garden a brand new Eden, sort of. Because of the multiplication of sin, God can't walk with his people as he had with Adam and Eve in the first Eden. So God institutes the priesthood and the sacrificial system so that his people can have a representative to stand before him and to atone for their sins with the sacrificial death of animals. Even after all these provisions, the people reject God's word so many times on their way to the promised land that God punishes them by further delaying their entrance into the land. And the generation of faithless adults that he had led out of Egypt are consigned to dying in the wilderness. And he instead gives the promised land to their children. Well, while Israel was in the wilderness, many enemies attempted to curse them. But God easily overcame their efforts, and then he prophesies in Numbers 24, 17 through 19, through the pagan sorcerer Balaam, that a great future king will be born in Israel to crush all Israel's enemies and to rule over all the peoples of the world. We learn that this king is the promised snake crusher, and that he won't just crush the snake but he will crush all the snake's offspring and finally bring an end to the warfare that began in the garden. This king will establish his rule over the world, and in doing so, he will bring Abraham's blessing to every family of the earth. Well, in the next chapter, Moses dies, and Joshua leads Israel into the promised land, where they are victorious over all their enemies. The book of Joshua records in 2145 that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. Well, Joshua sets up the tabernacle at Shiloh, and he exhorts the people to be faithful to God in their new land, their new Eden, where God will live among them in his tabernacle and abundantly bless them by defeating their enemies and by rolling back the effects of the curse on the ground. But Joshua also warns the people that God will afflict them with the curses of the law if they break his covenant. You know, up to this point in the story, we've seen that God's enemies, those people who, those who curse his people and attempt to derail his plans to crush the snake and restore Eden, those people have been no match for him. But the enemy within, 
that internal enemy of sin is a constant threat. In the wilderness, sin almost destroyed the covenant before it had even begun. Sin delayed Israel's entrance into the promised land. And now that they are here, what do you suppose is the biggest threat to their keeping this third Eden reboot? Well, after Joshua dies, Israel collapses into idolatry and into perversity of every kind. And as he warned he would do, God begins to afflict Israel with all the curses of the law. He sends enemies to plunder them. So instead of giving Israel rest from her enemies, he allows those enemies to afflict and even triumph over them. Well, after years of oppression by an enemy, Israel would turn back to God, who would then deliver them through the hands of a judge who would raise up to fight for them. And this cycle of sin, judgment, repentance, rescue repeats seven times before the era of the judges ends in civil war. The book of Judges shows us how desperately humanity needs their king not only to crush the snake and his offspring, but also to crush the enemy of sin entangled around their hearts. Only when sin is destroyed can Eden truly be restored. So will sin prevent God from accomplishing his plan? Well, God gives us reason to hope in the next chapter. During this dark time of the multiplication of sin in Israel, we meet a young Moabite widow named Ruth. And from the beginning, we can see her heart of covenant love. She moves into Bethlehem with her also widowed mother-in-law, to whom she is steadfastly loyal. And her character, Ruth's character, actually catches the attention of Boaz, who we eventually learn is a descendant of Judah and Tamar. Boaz is a bright light in the dark time of the judges, a time when the whole country is afflicted by famine and other curses of the law because of their rebellion against God. But Boaz lives honorably. He even obeys the minutia of God's law, such as not gleaning his fields a second time at harvest, but leaving whatever was missed by the harvesters for the poor and the immigrants to gather. Well, you know the rest of the story. Boaz and Ruth marry, and their line is fruitful. They become great-grandparents to a ruddy, handsome shepherd boy with beautiful eyes. And after years of constant warfare with their enemies, Israel installs this shepherd boy, David, on their throne. And David finally gives Israel rest from their enemies. And under his watch, Israel becomes a great nation. He shepherds the people as he had his flock on the fields of Bethlehem. And he has his great-grandmother's heart of covenant love. And God loves him. And he makes him an astounding promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he will establish David's dynastic house so that one of his sons will always sit on the throne of Jerusalem. But David dies. He was a good king, but even so, he was not guiltless. That old enemy of sin crept into the garden of his heart and wreaked havoc on the kingdom of Israel. But David repents of his sin, asking God to create a clean heart within him. Because David understood that his biggest problem was not the threat of external enemies, but the threat of the internal enemy. From conception, his heart and all of our hearts have been wayward. During his reign, David also prophesied about Israel's future king. 
he said he will also stands before God as Israel's priest, but that he won't be a priest from the failed line of Levi, but from the superior line of Melchizedek. So in Psalm 110, David reveals that Israel needs more than a king. They need a king, yes, to come crush their external enemies, but they also need someone to deal with that internal enemy of sin, so God doesn't crush them. What Israel needs... What we all need is a king priest. And that's what David prophesies of. He talks in Psalm 110 of the king priest rise to power, but also of the delay the king will experience between taking his throne and crushing all his remaining enemies and expanding his kingdom across the earth. Well, under David's rule, and again under his son Solomon's rule, all Israel is blessed. They have rest from their enemies. The land produces bountiful harvest. The people are fruitful and multiplying. God dwells with them in the magnificent temple Solomon builds, and they are happy. This is Eden all over again, and maybe this time they can keep it. But that enemy within rears its ugly head once more. Solomon begins to worship idols. And another Eden reboot, number four, if you're keeping track, comes crashing down. Israel fractures into two kingdoms, the northern Israel and the southern Judah. Well, Jeroboam of the northern kingdom establishes his own religion where he makes two golden calves for the people to worship. He says, you don't need to go to Jerusalem any longer to worship. You can do it right here. He then institutes his own festal calendar, priesthood, and sacrificial system. And then all Israel just plunges into idolatry with him. And from that moment on, their lives are hard because God afflicts them with the curses of the law. The land is filled with drought, famine, infertility, and enemy plunderers who carve off chunks of their land until finally Assyria invades and carts the people off into exile. That's the bird's eye view. But beneath the surface, God was still working sending mighty prophets to preach repentance. Elijah is one of those prophets, but he despairs that his work has been unfruitful. So God reveals to him, no, I have preserved 7,000 faithful Israelites who have not kissed Baal. But Elijah is taken up into heaven before he sees the exile or the restoration of his people. In the southern kingdom, a few good kings come to power here and there, but mostly the people of Judah also collapse into idolatry. One king, Manasseh, even goes so far as to bring an idolatrous image into the temple of God. But because of God's covenant love for David, and because of these few good kings, God delays in sending Babylon to destroy Judah. But like Israel, Judah's exile is certain because they do not listen to the voice of the prophets calling them to return to God. Instead, they give ear to the lies of the false prophets who tell them not to worry. God will never destroy your land. His temple is here. So do you see the pattern of giving ear to lies? It's not just Israel, of course. It's all humanity. It's like we will believe anything but the truth. Our wayward hearts consistently listen to everyone's voice but God's. Because, once again, outside the garden, our hearts are as barren as the land. And because, as David prayed, we need God to create a clean heart 
within us. Well, during this time, prior to the Babylonian exile, Isaiah foretells judgment, but also future renewed blessing for Judah, a blessing that will come because of of the seemingly fruitless work of a suffering servant who will offer his own life as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. After this despised and oppressed servant has offered his life, Isaiah prophesies that God will restore him and give him a throne above every other throne, and his rule will usher in the new Eden, where there are no more wars because all enemies have been crushed. The joy of Israel at this time will multiply like the harvest of the ground, and this king will extend his rule into every corner of the earth, restoring all the blessings of Eden. We saw that in Isaiah 9. A contemporary of Isaiah's, Micah, also prophesies during this time that Israel's fate awaits Judah if they won't turn back to God. In his prophecies, he reminds Israel of God's promise to send their king of glory from the line of David, but he tells them to look beyond Jerusalem and beyond the enemies that even now are laying siege to the city of God. Because unbeknownst to those enemies, God is raising up one from the small town of Bethlehem who will destroy them. Micah 5.2 teaches us that the one who is to rule all the kingdoms of the earth will descend from a small clan of people doing small work in a small town. God will establish this ruler as his king, and he will rule his people like a shepherd cares for his flock. Well, as God promised, Judah goes into exile. The wicked Babylonian empire desecrates their temple and mercilessly kills so many of them, reserving the best and the brightest to take back to their city. And for 70 years, Judah languishes in exile. But then God, true to his word, sends them home in a new exodus where they rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem and they try to reboot Eden now for the fifth time. But we quickly recognize that their exile isn't actually over. They have their land and they have their temple, but God is no longer living among them as he had in Solomon's day or as he had in the wilderness, or as he had in the garden, because God's glory no longer fills his temple. He does keep speaking to them, though, through the post-exilic prophets, but only for a time. When they reject his words, God gives one last promise of hope for the faithful and a warning of judgment for those who will not turn back to him. And that warning comes through the prophet Malachi. He tells them, when the day of the Lord is near, I will send Elijah the prophet to preach repentance and reconciliation to prepare the hearts of Israel to receive their king, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And with those words, God goes silent. And Israel languishes in spiritual exile. For 400 years, God sends no prophet, he makes no appearance in his temple, and no Davidic king sits on Israel's throne. But just as he had preserved David's line of descendants in Babylon, he will preserve David's line through these 400 years of silence. 
During these years, Israel does not just suffer in spiritual exile. In 330 BC, Alexander the Great conquers Palestine, and the Greeks move into the land and rule over Israel, so they're in exile in their homeland with pagan enemies ruling over them. When Alexander the Great prematurely dies, his kingdom is divided among his four generals, and for a while there is continual warfare in Israel as two ruling houses fight over their land. So for 200 years, Israel is ruled alternately by the Ptolemies dynasty and the Seleucids. And it's during these years, actually, that Greek replaces Hebrew as the language of Israel, and scholars begin to translate the law and later the prophets into Greek, and the Septuagint is born. Well, the most notable Seleucid ruler is Antiochus Epiphanes. He rules over Israel beginning in 169 BC, and he desecrates the temple. He offers a pig on the altar, and then he tries to eradicate Judaism. But just a few years later, under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, Judah rebels against Antiochus, and they are successful. They reclaim their temple and their religion, and they even enjoy self-rule, establishing their own king priest in Simon Maccabeus. And it's actually this victory over Antiochus and the rededication of the temple that the Jewish people celebrate at Hanukkah each year. Now, God had graciously prophesied about all these events way back in Babylon through Daniel. So even though God was not actively speaking to his people through the prophets at this time, he did not leave himself without a witness. His words, spoken long ago through the prophets, continue to come true even during this period of silence from heaven. Well, this time of self-rule in Israel carries on until Rome invades the nation and Pompey takes control of Jerusalem in 63 BC. And then 26 years later, with the approval of Rome, Herod the Great captures Jerusalem, this is 37 BC, and establishes his throne as king of Judea. King Herod was of Edomite descent. So he descended from Esau's nation, who had cursed Israel so long ago in the wilderness. But he was born into a family who had converted to Judaism three generations prior. And after coming to power, likely to ingratiate himself to his subjects, Herod begins to restore the temple in Jerusalem to its former glory. That's around 20 BC. And it is this king... King Herod, whose character we see will unfold as you read the sequel, but it's this king who is ruling Judea during the Roman Empire at the opening of the sequel to the Old Testament. Let's look at that now. So let's look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, so right off, we get our bearings. We're getting the historical setting. The following events occur during the reign of King Herod. This is probably about 4 B.C. Next, we get a micro-genealogy. So remember, the Old Testament used genealogies to mark key characters in the story. So because we're getting a lineage here, we know these players are important. Both this man and his wife are descendants of Aaron. 
the first high priest of Israel. So Zechariah descended from Aaron, Eliezer, and Abijah, and Elizabeth directly descended from Aaron's daughters. So these two have genetic pedigree. They are priestly line purebloods, if you will. Now look at verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Okay, not only do they have genetic pedigree through their priestly lineage, they also have spiritual pedigree through their righteous lives. So they are living according to the laws of Moses. So notice the parallel in the way the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. We left off in Malachi with a few Judeans who banded together to be faithful to God and obey the laws of Moses. And now here we are, 400 years later, when the sequel begins, the first characters we meet are a faithful married couple who are blamelessly walking in the commandments of the Lord. Well, this is a hopeful beginning. After 400 years of silence from God, after 400 years of political upheaval in the land, and after 400 years of languishing in spiritual exile, we turn the page and we find faithfulness in Israel. Today's story introduces us to a brand new generation of Israelites. They are very different from their forefathers in some ways, but as we'll see in others, they are very much the same. So the story begins on a note of hope, but there is a problem. Let's look at verse 7. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, in Israel's covenant with God, barrenness was one of the curses God afflicted his people with for not keeping the law. But here, it's faithful law keepers who are afflicted with this curse. Zechariah and Elizabeth haven't been fruitful in the most literal sense of the word, and now they have aged well past the point of hope for offspring. But we have seen all this before, right, with Abraham and Sarah, so we know better than to think little things like infertility or old age can derail, derail God's plan. And we know to assume that Elizabeth's barrenness is the plan. It is not a curse for her sin. So let's keep reading in verses 8 and 9. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So, little history here. According to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian from the first century, there were actually 24 divisions of first century priesthood. And the, the rest of this history I'm borrowing heavily from Daryl Bach's commentary on Luke, who explains that those 24 divisions of priests consisted of about 18,000 priests who were then subdivided into orders, and each of those orders would serve two non-consecutive one-week periods at the temple each year. Well, as it happens, Zechariah is in Jerusalem because it is his order's assigned week to perform the duties of the temple. The order would cast lots to choose which priests would get the honor of offering incense in the temple. And this was a significant honor, likely the experience of a lifetime, and one that the priests would probably never repeat. Verse 10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So let's talk very briefly about this custom of lighting of the incense. 
This happened at the golden altar, which was positioned in the interior of the temple in the holy place, just outside the curtain which divided the holy place from the most holy place where the ark of God was concealed. This was an ancient tradition. It began way back in the wilderness in the tabernacle. And the incense was important for a lot of reasons, but I'm just going to name one. The cloud of incense symbolized the prayers of God's people rising up before him as a fragrant offering. In fact, as the priest lit the incense, he was to pray before God while the people outside were also praying. So you can see this close connection between the incense and prayer. So while Zechariah is working his way into the, toward the interior of the temple to burn incense at the golden altar, God's people outside were praying. And we should also note that there are a lot of people. Luke describes them as a multitude. And again, what a different group of people we encounter in the New Testament. On the surface, they appear to be nothing like their ancestors of 400 years ago, when the people were lax in keeping up the temple rituals, bringing lame animals for sacrifice, and neglecting the temple tithe. Their ancestors said there is no profit in serving the Lord. Well, their descendants appear to think otherwise. They are being careful to follow the customs established by Moses in the wilderness. So outside, while the people are practicing the daily routine of prayer, inside is anything but routine. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. This is something that has not happened in Israel for a very long time. God may not be in his temple, but now he has sent one of his angelic messengers to his temple. So we recognize here immediately that God is breaking his silence. And you know, whenever the Bible records an angelic counter, humans consistently respond the same way, with Fear. So let's see how Zechariah responds, verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And that is doubtless understatement, because Luke, the author, doesn't want us to get sidetracked by the magnificence of this angel. It's not the point. So just note, like every other person in history who has had an angelic encounter, Zechariah is scared. Angels are powerful, and they are frightening and, you know, we can't help but think, if God's angels produce this effect in humans, imagine what an encounter with God himself would be like. Well, in verse 13, this angel speaks. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So three observations here. God sends Zechariah a message that he has answered his prayer. Well, what prayer? He seems to imply that he's answering an old, almost forgotten prayer, a prayer for a son. But he's also signaling that he is answering a bigger prayer. He's answering Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer and the prayer of all his faithful people. Possibly even the very prayers the multitude outside are even now offering up to God Return to us, O God. Send your king to restore us. Zechariah and Elizabeth, so this old barren couple, will have a baby boy. And they will name him 
Not Zechariah. Aaron? No. Elijah? No. They are to call him John. And normally the parents name the child, and it was customary in those days to give the child a family name, and often, in the case of the firstborn, the father's name. But here God has chosen the name for this child, showing that he is a special child, and he is set apart by God for a very specific purpose. John's name means God is gracious. The child's name signals that God is about to work on behalf of his people once again. He has been silent. He has judged them, but now he will return to them and be gracious once more. But that is not all the angel has to say. Look at verses 14 and 15. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So four quick observations here. We see those words joy and gladness, and that reminds us of the people of Solomon's day. Remember, after concluding a week of celebrations at the newly constructed temple, they return home with joyful and glad hearts, grateful for the prosperity God had given them through David and Solomon. Well, no one in Israel has had joy like that since, and that was over 900 years ago. But this boy, John, will make not only his parents joyful and glad, but many will rejoice at his birth. He will also be great before the Lord. So Abraham was great. David was great. And now this child, too, will be great. But he must not drink wine or strong drink. And this was a prohibition for priests while they were serving their rotations at the temple. But it was also the Nazarite vow. And if you were able to complete your homework, you were reminded of Israel's long-haired, supernaturally strong judge, Samson, whose birth was also announced to barren parents via an angel messenger. So the angel's prohibition on John teaches us to expect his ministry to have something of the power of Samson's. This vow will also set John apart from the rest of the people. He's not going to be filled with wine. He will instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that definitively sets John apart as a prophet of God. All the ministries of the Old Testament prophets were empowered by the Spirit of God, who came and went as he pleased. But the fact that the Spirit will fill John even from his mother's womb distinguishes him even above all the Old Testament prophets, and it suggests that the Spirit will never leave him like, the, like he would with the Old Testament prophets. All his life and ministry will be lived out under the Spirit's influence. But what is his ministry? That is what the angel covers next in verses 16 and 17. This is what John will do. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, that's God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared." You can just hear all kinds of echoes from Malachi in this description. First, there's that word turn, which we know is an expression of repentance. For Israel, this is a turning back to their covenant God, whom they had rejected. In turning, they will be saved from his judgment. 
Second, there's this mention of going before him. Again, he's talking about God. And we know that God promised to send a messenger before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the day of Yahweh. And Yahweh's day has long been connected with the coming of the snake crusher and the king of glory. So this statement about going before God is a clear indication that John's ministry is paving the way for the day of the Lord and therefore for the coming of the king of glory. Third, John is going to do his work in the spirit and power of Elijah. So, of course, we, rec we recall Malachi's prophecy, and we recognize that this angel is announcing the birth of the promised Elijah, whose appearance will signal the day of the Lord is very, very near. And then fourth, there's that specific quote from Malachi, to turn the hearts of father to their children. So again, this angel is without a doubt announcing the birth of that promised messenger. And then we get a phrase, a new phrase we didn't see in Malachi, but it speaks of another turning, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So a turning away from disobedience is a turning toward righteousness. That word just is another way we speak of being righteous. So if the disobedient listen to the wisdom of the just, they will turn away from their sin and back to their God. And then we see the effect of John's ministry. He will prepare the people to receive the Lord when he comes. And Lord here again, refers to God, not the king of glory. But we've already seen from Psalm 110 that the king of glory is at God's right hand in heaven before he comes. And then when he comes on the day of his power, God is at his right hand. These two are so closely connected. They work together so that the day can simultaneously be called the day of Yahweh and the day of the king's power. And the effect of John's ministry will prepare the people for this day. When this day comes, there will be a whole multitude of people who are ready. Well, that was the angel's message to Zechariah. Let's see how Zechariah responds in verse 18. Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So Zechariah expresses doubt, and he wants a sign. That's what he's saying when he says, how shall I know this? He wants proof that God intends to do this thing because, frankly, it seems impossible given their old age. Well, the angel is not impressed with Zechariah's question. When a similar promise was given to Abraham, he did not question it or ask for a sign. So Zechariah does not exercise the faith of Abraham in this moment. And the angel responds to him in verses 19 and 20, saying, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to, sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So for the first time, we realize who this angel is. This is Gabriel. He is one of the few angels who are named in our scriptures. He's important. He has the honor of standing before God in the heavenly throne room. 
And we haven't seen or heard from Gabriel since he visited Daniel in Babylon to help him understand the meaning of his troubling visions of the future. That was half a millennia ago. God seems to reserve Gabriel for very special missions. Missions like announcing how he is governing all of history or missions like announcing the birth of a promised prophet whose birth will signal the day of the Lord is almost here. So Gabriel has relayed his message and he doesn't appreciate Zechariah's skepticism. So Zechariah knows the scripture. He should recognize what this announcement means for Israel. And he should know that old age and infertility is not an obstacle to God. But at this moment, Zechariah wavers and doubts. Give me a sign. And a sign Gabriel gives him. A sign that the prophecy is indeed true and a sign of judgment. Since Zechariah wavered in wholehearted belief of God's words, his words will temporarily be taken away. Well, after this, Gabriel disappears, and Zechariah is left speechless, literally, to return to the people who are outside waiting for him. In verse 21, it says, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So his delay creates a little bit of a stir. And if the priest lingered too long in the holy place, the people would wonder if God wasn't pleased with his offering or his prayer on their behalf. This is how Daryl Bach again describes it. So the incense tradition was intentionally kept short so that the people outside did not become agitated. And after the priest lit the incense, said his prayer, he would go out and bless the people waiting outside. But Zechariah delayed, and his delay crea created a stir, but nothing compared to the stir he created when he did come out completely speechless. So verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So after this, the curtain drops. That's the end of the scene. We don't know exactly what the people understood from Zechariah's signing. We don't even know exactly what Zechariah was trying to sign. But the people did arrive at a proper conclusion. Something supernatural happened in there, and that meant good news for the people. God had been silent for so long, but now they realize God is breaking his silence. Well, the scene shifts. In verse 23, Zechariah goes home, and then verse 24, surprise, we have an apparently immediate fulfillment. God was not slow to keep this promise. After these days, verse 24, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. Luke does not suggest why Elizabeth hid away, and we can only speculate. But what we don't have to speculate about is how grateful Elizabeth was. See what she says in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. So Elizabeth is happy, but she's also feeling vindicated. She has labored many years under this curse of barrenness. People have misjudged her. They have assumed evil of her because she had not been fruitful in having children. So Elizabeth has suffered unfairly, but God 
has looked on her and has vindicated her by taking away her reproach. And I love that phrase, when he looked on me. It actually reminds me of another woman from the Old Testament, one we haven't talked about in this study. It reminds me of Hagar. Hagar was Sarah's slave, the slave she gave to Abraham so they could have offspring through her because Sarah was barren. Well, poor Hagar. What a difficult position she was in, and with no power to alter it. When she conceived, her life became even more difficult. Sarah harshly mistreated her and later mistreated her child, Ishmael, demanding that Abraham send him away. And you know, of course, the story is never simple. Neither Hagar nor Ishmael were completely blameless, but still, they were harshly mistreated. But God took care of them. He looked on them. Twice he met with Hagar in the desert to comfort and provide for her and her son. And Hagar actually names God, calling him the God who sees me. Here, Elizabeth feels Hagar's joy. And she experiences just how personal the powerful God of heaven can be. He looks on her. He takes pity on her her suffering, and he blesses her beyond what she could have imagined. She won't just have a baby, but she will give birth to the prophet whose ministry will herald the coming of the king of glory. You know, as our sequel unfolds, we're going to see more of this self-righteous judgmentalism in Israel. And this is something the prophet Isaiah has already hinted about in Isaiah 53 that the people would even assume evil of the suffering servant, saying his suffering was because of God's judgment on him for his sins. You know, not everyone who suffers reproach or is falsely accused in this life will share Elizabeth's joy of vindication in this life. We are not promised that. But the day is coming when God will vindicate all of his people the way he vindicated Jesus when he raised him from the dead. So I just want to close by asking the question, who is a God like ours? Who at once holds all of eternity in his hands? He works across the millennia of history. He raises up kings. He topples empires. He creates new nations. He divides the waters. He sends worldwide floods. Who is a God like that? But who is a God like ours, who opens the mouth of a donkey, who opened the wombs of countless barren women, who saw a weary and a thirsty Hagar and led her to a spring of water in the wilderness? Or who is a God like ours, who looked on Elizabeth to take away her reproach? Our God is a God so big, but also so personal. And he is a God who will accomplish his plan with amazing displays of power, but also with personal acts of astounding kindness to his children. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for being so big and so powerful, um, able to accomplish your plan no matter what obstacles stand in your way. But thank you for being so personal and for looking on each of us 
and giving us exactly what we need in your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.